So the most common presenting symptom of a heart attack for a woman is actually chest pain, um, but it may be, may be experienced differently than a, a man. Um, so it can be that classic elephant sitting on my chest, you know, pressure-like sensation, um, or it can be a little bit more subtle. Um, it can feel more like um, an upset stomach. Um, sometimes it can be felt sort of more in the neck or the, the um, upper abdomen. This is the Healthy Lifestyle Solutions Podcast, and I'm your host, Maya Acosta. If you're willing to go with me, together we can discover how simple lifestyle choices can help improve our quality of life. Let's get started. As we near the end of February, I have an exciting interview to share with you featuring none other than Dr. Nicole Harkin, a triple board certified preventive cardiologist. In this interview from last year, I will be adding commentary to guide the conversation and bring you even more valuable insights into the world of cardiology. Dr. Harkin's approach to cardiac care involves a combination of precision medicine and lifestyle changes with a focus on preventing heart disease through sustainable and healthful practices. Her passion for patient-centered care and personalized plans have made her a sought-after expert in the field. So without further ado, let's dive into this intriguing conversation. And as always, my friends, the full bio and the links to all of my guests can be found on the website, healthylifestylesolutions.org. Let's meet Dr. Harkin. Yeah, so in its most basic sense, a cardiologist is a heart doctor. Um, and so, and as you mentioned, that can mean lots of different things. So we can get into the different types of heart disease that we tend to see, um, but a cardiologist is someone who has done, um, uh, after medical school, they've trained for three years in internal medicine, sort of just understanding kind of um, whole body um, medicine, and then um, specializes in specifically the heart. So then um, they'll go on to do three years of a cardiology fellowship specifically. And then from there, you can sub-sub-specialize as well. Um, so I chose to kind of really sub-specialize in preventive cardiology, um, but there's doctors that specialize in um, the plumbing of the heart, as you mentioned. So those are interventional cardiologists. They put stents in and things like that. Um, and then there's um, electrophysiologists who are types of heart doctors that um, help with arrhythmias um, and can do uh, procedures if someone needs a pacemaker, for instance, or if someone um, needs a what's called an ablation, which is a specific uh, procedure that can help um, to treat rhythm issues, like atrial fibrillation is probably something that you read or have heard about. Um, there are specialists in um, cardiology who deal with um, con um, congenital heart disease. So um, uh, heart disease that people are born with. Um, and uh, then there is um, uh, congestive heart failure, which is the other um, really common thing that we see. Um, and that's when the heart pump function is not, is not working as well as it should. Um, and so those doctors are really... Um, key in kind of helping to optimize their um, medications and treatments um, to help the heart improve um, if possible, and at the very least, their symptoms. 
Um, so those are the different types of heart doctors. Um, and in general, what cardiologists do is they, they treat any number of those different heart conditions, um, typically using medications and hopefully with also lifestyle changes and things like that. Um, some of them do do procedures, as I mentioned. Um, so there are some procedures, but that differs from, um, say, a surgeon um, who is um, opening up uh, the chest and performing an actual surgery. So cardiologists who are interventional cardiologists can fix valves and, and put stents in and things like that, but it's all performed um, percutaneously, um, which means through kind of an artery in the leg or, or the arm or something like that. Dr. Harkin provides a detailed overview of the day-to-day -day responsibilities of a general cardiologist. Yeah, so a general cardiologist, which is someone who um, kind of is, um, isn't subspecialized into one of those areas that I mentioned, but does sort of general cardiology, um, oftentimes um, they have a clinic, um, whether it's at a hospital or a private practice um, where they, they have a fairly large panel of patients that they're seeing. Um, most cardiologists will start their mornings um, rounding in the hospital. If they have any patients that are admitted to the hospital, they see them there and help coordinate treatment plans and then go to the office and have a full day of patients. Um, most cardiologists also are reading different heart tests. So there's heart testing that we can do um, like echocardiograms. Those are sonograms of the heart and there we can look at the pump function of the heart. So um, I'm also board certified and able to, to read and interpret those tests. Um, we also supervise and interpret stress tests, which are, um, there's a couple different forms, but in its most basic senses um, is where you're looking at the, the you're looking for blockages essentially in the, the heart um, uh, that might be causing chest pain or shortness of breath. And so, um, so we supervise those tests often on a treadmill and then interpret the, the EKGs and the, the imaging um, for that as well. So most cardiologists will, will supervise and interpret and read those tests throughout the day. In between patients, um, many are seeing many, many patients a day, um, charting um, and then uh, call in the hospital as well. So many, most cardiologists will take um, significant amounts of call in which they're responsible for going into the hospital overnight for, for emergencies. At what point do we know that we need to see a cardiologist? That's a great question. So um, in, in general, um, when we're talking about sort of heart disease, typically what we're discussing is um, the, the blockages in the arteries of the heart. So that's typically what people think about when they think about heart disease. Um, and as you mentioned, um, heart disease is um, the number one killer of both men and women here in the States, but also internet globally. Um, and so, um, so it's, and it's also a, a very big cause of, um, of morbidity or disability. Um, so it's a huge topic um, and um, and something that's just really important to talk about. And I love that that you're here doing a whole series on, on Heart Health Month. Um, so so the, the blockages of the arteries is what um, is something that um, is a very large bulk of, of heart disease. Um, but as we mentioned, there's all different kinds of heart disease, some of which is has similar risk factors, others um, are which are completely unrelated. Um, 
So congestive heart failure is a, another big one, um, which is where the, the pump function of the heart muscle isn't working as well. And that can be due to heart attacks over time, can also be um, due to um, many other causes, um, alcohol use, all kinds of different things can, can cause that. Um, and so that's another, another very large um, area of, of heart disease. Um, and then rhythm issues, like we mentioned, like atrial fibrillation, um, those, those can, that's part of kind of heart disease. Um, uh, congenital heart disease, which we mentioned. So all these different um, groups of, of heart disease um, kind of go under that big umbrella. Um, and then um, to kind of get to your second question, um, you know, it's, it's almost like it's never too early to see a heart doctor. Um, you know, most people, and it depends on kind of what's going on and your risk factors and, and everything else. Um, so most people traditionally start to, will come see a heart doctor if they're having symptoms. So if, for instance, they're having some chest pain they're concerned about or palpitations like heart racing, that's oftentimes when people come in to see me. Um, so that's usually when people start to get plugged in. Um, in my current practice, more and more, um, I typically am seeing sort of two different groups of patients. Um, and so, and it gets into the different types of prevention there is. So there's something called primary prevention, um, which are patients, um, which is when you're trying to prevent heart disease from establishing. Um, so I get a lot of patients who have strong family histories of heart disease or who have um, very high cholesterol or any number of risk factors for heart disease. Um, and so they want to come in and see me and really um, figure out how to best optimize that and, and really make sure they're minimizing all of these risk factors um, so that they can hopefully prevent heart disease in the first place. And then I have a whole another group of patients who have heart disease. Um, they've either had a heart attack or a stent or a positive stress test, and they want to really work on making sure that, that they don't have any further events. And that's called secondary prevention. Um, and so we see those patients as well. Um, so there's an, all kinds of reasons to see, you know, a heart doctor. The best place to start typically, if you're concerned, would be to talk to your primary care doctor um, and say, you know, hey, my heart health, um, you know, because of my dad or this, that or the other, I'm concerned about it. You know, would you recommend that I see a, a heart doctor at this point? Um, many primary care doctors, you know, can manage some of that, that, that stuff. Um, and, and then others, you know, recommend that you really get um, a consultation with, with someone. The best place to start if you're concerned about your heart health would be to speak with your primary care physician and see if they recommend that you see a heart doctor. For patients who are asymptomatic but interested in knowing their heart health, there are non-invasive ways to assess that. For patients who aren't having any symptoms at all, meaning they're asymptomatic um, but are interested in sort of getting a, an understanding of what their heart health kind of looks like right now, um, there's some non-invasive ways that we can assess that. Um, and so um, typically we will look at um, something called a coronary artery calcium score. Um, and some, some a corollary of that is a, another type of CAT scan that's, um, that uses dye. But most commonly it's the, the coronary artery calcium score, CAC for short. So you might hear it referred to as that. Um, basically what that is, is it's a very um, specialized CAT scan that's looking just at the arteries in your heart. Um, and specifically, it's quantifying the amount of calcium that is in the arteries of your heart. It's important to note that when a plaque has been calcified, that actually means it's an 
old plaque, not a new plaque. So the very, so how plaques sort of develop is you get cholesterol, it's in your bloodstream, it kind of gets through the, the walls of the artery, deposits, builds up over time, um, and then it starts to evolve and eventually gets calcified over time. So when you're doing these coronary artery calcium scores, you're actually kind of identifying older plaque. Um, and then you can use that so it quantifies it, it will give you a number of, um, and then it will also give you kind of an idea of your percentile. So where you fall in based on other individuals that you're with your same age and, and gender. Um, and that can be really helpful to sort of get a sense of, um, you know, what's going on right now. Um, keeping in mind that caveat that I mentioned is that it doesn't identify that early soft plaque. Um, so it can be useful, for instance, in, say, a younger person who has um, elevated cholesterol. Um, we've really worked on a lot of dietary changes. We can't seem to get that cholesterol quite down. And we get the coronary artery calcium score, and it's very elevated. So that can kind of help us make that decision, okay, this, this cholesterol, Cholesterol is very important at this point. We're already seeing deposition. Um, we need to do something about it and, and, and really talk more seriously about medications, for instance. Um, so it can be very helpful with treatment decisions and helping people sort of get a sense of where they're at. And then the flip side of that is, you know, someone who you're sort of on the borderline, but they're kind of getting their numbers down and you get the coronary calcium score and it's zero. So that's a little bit reassuring. Okay, so, so far things look pretty good. We still want to get these numbers down, but we've got some time to work on this together. So as you know, on the podcast, it's important for me to support women in health. And so I specifically asked Dr. Harkin to address heart disease in women. As you know, heart disease is a leading cause of death for both men and women in the United States. However, women may experience heart disease differently than men. There are unique risk factors to consider. In this segment, Dr. Nicole Harkin discusses the relationship between pregnancy complications and heart disease and the importance of recognizing symptoms of a heart attack in women. Yeah, so um, I think it's really important that we discuss um, women and heart disease specifically, um, because as you mentioned, it can affect us very differently, and there are different risk factors. Um, so the most common risk factors for women um, for heart disease are the same as they are for men. Um, so things like... Um, you know, diabetes, high cholesterol, high blood pressure, being above our ideal body weight, um, sedentary lifestyle, family history, um, smoking, um, and obviously nutrition. So, so the big risk factors are, are common, but there are certainly some, some risk factors that are unique to women. Um, and so the hormonal and, and pregnancy related ones are probably some of the most important ones. Um, and so there is a relationship between um, some pregnancy complications, um, specifically definitely preeclampsia, but also gestational diabetes, gestational hypertension, um, and then actually having a small for gestational age weight baby. Um, so these um, pregnancy complications, quote unquote, are, um, it's really important to recognize that they are associated with an increased risk of heart disease later in life. Um, and so whether it's, and it's, it's unfortunately still very poorly understood, um, some of it may be that it is sort of unmasking um, a, a woman's risk for heart disease um, because of XYZ risk factors. But there also is increasing evidence that in and of itself, preeclampsia can cause vascular changes that then makes it more likely that a, a woman will develop heart disease later in life. Regardless, what we do know is it does matter. And it's important 
for I think women to know because one, it's underrecognized in general, as you said, um, in the general population, but even within kind of the medical community as well. Um, and so your doctor should be, you know, you should definitely, if you've had a pregnancy complication like that, and you're now um, sort of in your middle aged and kind of starting to think more seriously about heart disease prevention and things like that, make sure your doctor knows that because that is something that should be taken into account when we're sort of assessing cardiovascular risk. And, um, and so it, it's kind of a risk enhancing feature, meaning that you want to make sure that every, you know, that obviously you can't change the preeclampsia you had 20 years ago, but it does mean that you want to sort of do everything you can from a lifestyle perspective to try to lower your risk um, in general. And then also, you know, make sure that cholesterol is really well controlled, make sure you're not smoking, make sure the diabetes is really well controlled, those sort of things. So it's stuff that all kind of goes into our um, comprehensive understanding of your overall cardiovascular risk. Um, and then just kind of touching on that second question you had about um, women and how their symptom symptoms. Um, so the most common presenting symptom of a heart attack for a woman is actually chest pain, um, but it may be, may be experienced differently than a, a man. Um, so it can be that classic elephant sitting on my chest, you know, pressure-like sensation, um, or it can be a little bit more subtle. Um, it can feel more like um, an upset stomach. Um, sometimes it can be felt sort of more in the neck or the, the um, upper abdomen, um, sometimes in the shoulder region. Um, also, we're more, we are more likely to have sort of atypical symptoms, um, quote unquote, things like just sort of really bad fatigue, really nauseous, um, just kind of general feeling of very unwell or anxious. Um, so there are other symptoms that we can have in conjunction with this chest pain or in isolation. Um, and um, women are, are, are more likely to present late, meaning we're we don't really believe we're having a heart attack. And so we come into the emergency room much later than we should. Um, and we tend to have worse outcomes, um, both because we're presenting later, as well as because um, historically we've been prescribed um, less medication and get have received less timely treatment. So um, for all these reasons, you know, it's just important for us not to be scared, but just to be aware and to be our own advocates um, and to really, you know, we're oftentimes so worried about everybody else's health, the kids, you know, our spouses, everybody um, that we kind of forget to take care of ourselves and make sure we're going to our doctor's appointments and we're on top of these things and things and that um, and things like that. So um, keep looking after yourself. Your health is just as important as everybody else's in the family. Um, and then also, you know, if you feel like something might be wrong, get it checked out, be an advocate. Um, don't just blow it off. Dr. Harkin emphasizes the importance of self-advocacy and taking care of one's own health. Before moving on to discussing cholesterol numbers and risk factors for heart disease, I asked Dr. Harkin about broken heart syndrome, which has become more prevalent since the pandemic. Yeah, so broken heart syndrome, um, for um, those of you who haven't heard it of what it is, it essentially is a temporary um, congestive heart failure. So essentially what happens is, is that typically in response to um, a really surprising, devastating event 
or stressful event um, that someone will 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 have some chest pain. Um, it presents very similarly as a heart attack. So oftentimes um, the EKG um, and the sonogram will look like you're having a heart attack. Um, and then we go in to look at the arteries of the heart and there's no heart attack. There's no plaque that's broken, that's um, ruptured. Everything looks fine. The arteries look fine. Um, but for but for whatever reason, the, the pump function of the muscle is, is depressed, meaning it's the, your heart is not pumping as well as it should. And it has a very specific kind of pattern. Um, Luckily, it is temporary um, over, you know, weeks to months. It typically normalizes um, and um, uh, sometimes with the help of medications, um, other times not, um, and and does not seem to sort of predispose you to having um, heart disease later down the line. Um, but it can be quite serious. Um, it can definitely require hospitalizations um, and, and medications to help support um, the cardiovascular system um, temporarily. So people can be quite sick. Um, uh, and so it's, you know, just important to, to recognize. Um, and again, we, we typically used to see it in a lot in relation to, um, just a really shocking, stressful, surprising event. Um, but it can happen, um, for, for any number of reasons. And so, um, you know, over the course of, of COVID and, um, all of these different, um, you know, stresses at an all-time high, um, and and things like that, and so it's not totally altogether surprising um, that we're seeing this. Um, and then that just needs to be sort of um, that's a separate entity than the other COVID-related heart disease that we've been hearing about, which is the myocarditis, which is the actual inflammation in response to the, a viral infection, which can cause the heart to not pump as well. And that can be very, very, very serious. Um, and we, you know, we've always seen that with different viruses, but we're certainly seeing it with it with COVID as well. So I asked Dr. Harkin to explain the correlation between cholesterol levels and heart disease. So it's important to look at the overall picture. Um, so uh, cholesterol is one of the most important risk factors for heart disease. It's not, by, but it's definitely not the only. Um, and it is necessary um, to develop heart disease. So cholesterol is what creates that plaque. Um, so elevated levels of cholesterol within the bloodstream or more accurately the lipoproteins that carry the cholesterol in the bloodstream um, is, is causative of heart disease. And so that's a big one that we, we focus on. Um, we also worry about, um, as you mentioned, different things that can cause the endothelium, which is the lining of the blood vessel to be, um, uh, weaker and so things are inflamed. And so chronic inflammation is a big one. Um, you know, glucose control, um, smoking, which causes inflammation, you know, all these things can also increase our risk, um, hypertension of, of heart disease. Um, but definitely cholesterol is a big one and one that I tend to focus on a lot in my practice. Um, with regards to kind of what numbers to look for, when you're getting that standard lipid panel um, from your physician, um, what it will show is your total cholesterol, which is all of the cholesterol contained with all of the lipoproteins within your bloodstream. Um, and then it will give you the LDL cholesterol, the HDL cholesterol, and the triglycerides. Um, so the LDL cholesterol and the HDL cholesterol, um, known to many people as the bad cholesterol and the good cholesterol, um, those are, again, that's the amount of cholesterol that's contained within those lipoproteins. So um, most uh, physicians um, focus um, 
pretty exclusively on at this point, at least as your first priority, the LDL cholesterol. We don't focus as much on the total cholesterol simply because that is also taking into account your HDL cholesterol. Now, HDL cholesterol is very complicated, but in its most simplistic sense, um, it is it is not um, it's not quite as protective as we once thought. Um, it uh, at least as it's reflected in that HDL number, um, but I, it, but it's certainly the LDL cholesterol um, that is one of the more atherogenic, meaning causing plaque buildup. Um, and so that's why we tend to focus on that. Um, the HDL cholesterol epidemiologically um, is associated when it's elevated, is actually associated with lower risk of heart disease. We're finding out more and more how complicated it is and that it matters more about its, its ability to perform its function rather than that HDL cholesterol number. Um, but for that reason, the total cholesterol um, isn't as informative because you can have kind of an elevated HDL cholesterol and that's maybe not the worst thing in the world. If it gets too high, it might, it turns out that's probably not so good. Um, but, but you know, the more elevated numbers that we sometimes see is, is, is probably okay. So for all those reasons, we really focus on the LDL cholesterol. And for that, um, we like to see that, um, you know, definitely ideally below hundred milligrams per deciliter. Um, and that's kind of for, average risk individual in someone who has multiple um, risk factors for heart disease or established heart disease or has diabetes, we really like to see that even lower. Um, so definitely for my patients with heart disease, it should be below 70 milligrams per deciliter. I like to push it down even, even lower if possible. Um, so those are sort of the numbers that we look at. Um, and, um, you know, again, with the HDL cholesterol, we can talk about different things that can, can potentially raise it. But honestly, we've yet to show that by raising your HDL cholesterol in a trial that we can, we can prevent heart disease. Um, so as of now, it's, it's not, not something that we're as, as focused on. Um, and then the triglycerides are sort of your secondary target. Um, and we can get into those if, if we have time, but, um, but really that LDL cholesterol is, is what can, is, um, the most, focus simply because we've shown study after study after study that either individuals who naturally have low LDL cholesterol or who push it down with lifestyle and or medications um, have a lower risk of heart disease. We do know that chronic stress as well as acute stress um, can adversely affect our risk for heart disease. So it is very important. Um, and we've got um, pretty good data at this point that um, stress reduction techniques like meditation and things like that can moderately lower um, blood pressure um, and other risk factors for heart disease. Um, and so, so certainly stress is something that, um, that I focus on a lot in my, in my practice with my patients, um, not so much to lower their cholesterol, but to lower their overall risk of, of heart disease. Um, and then, um, in terms of diet, um, yes. So there's, um, there's lots of different reasons that our cholesterol can be elevated. Um, and so, um, so diet is, is probably one of the most impactful, um, ways that we can lower our cholesterol. But as you correctly pointed out, um, we really need to make sure that we're focusing on, um, a whole food plant-based diet as opposed to a vegan diet, if we're interested in lowering our, our cholesterol. And that, and that's different in that, um, again, you're focusing on kind of 
whole foods that are plants as much as possible as opposed to processed and packaged foods. And why that we see that distinction um, is um, when it comes to cholesterol, for instance, is because in order to lower our cholesterol, um, sort of the two things that we really need to focus on is one, reducing our um, intake of saturated fats. So saturated fats are what raises our blood level of cholesterol. Um, and those are predominantly found in animal foods. Um, so we see them in, in red meat and other meats, um, uh, definitely processed um, meats, and then dairy, butter, cheeses, yogurts, things like that. Um, and then um, we do find it in coconut oil um, and in palm oil. And so that's how, as a, a vegan, if you're eating a lot of processed foods, those typically have one or both of those oils in them. That's how we can really raise our cholesterol. Um, and then the, what, um, we want to focus on eating more of is fiber, um, specifically soluble fiber. And that's what helps us to really lower our cholesterol. Um, and those are found mostly in unprocessed whole plant foods. Um, so, um, so getting lots and lots and lots of fiber is a way that we can really help lower our cholesterol. So, so certainly, um, one of the first things I, I talk to my patients about if they're, um, they're, you know, not eating very many animal products, but they don't understand why their cholesterol is going down is, okay, tell me what specifically you are eating. And we try to, um, find ways that we can make it be a little bit less processed, um, and get more fiber in their diet. Um, and then secondly, um, you know, definitely genetics are important. Um, and, and there are definitely um, many different um, genetic causes of elevated cholesterol that um, respond differently to changes in diet. Um, and some patients, despite eating a very whole food, plant-based, no oil, no sugar, no no. Um, salt, um, still don't see their cholesterols kind of getting down where they want them to, to be. Um, and, um, and unfortunately, um, genetics can't, you, you can't always quote unquote beat your genetics. Now that's not to say that the, um, eating a healthy lifestyle isn't still very important. Um, because as we mentioned, cholesterol isn't everything, right? It is important that you're eating that way to lower your blood pressure, to lower your, um, your levels of inflammation. You know, all that stuff is still very, very important. It just might mean that in order to get our cholesterol to a safe level, you, you might need, um, to reach for something else. And sometimes that's, that's a medication and that's okay. That's not a failure, right? That is the beauty of being able to have all these different tools at our disposal to optimize our heart health. Dr. Harkin also emphasizes the importance of exercise, stress, reduction, sleep, and community connections for heart health is exercise. Um, so that's another really big area with a lot of robust research to show that um, definitely getting um, at least 150 minutes of moderate intensity exercise per week is what we need to achieve optimal heart health. Um, we continue to see benefits all the way up to 300 minutes of moderate intensity exercise per week. So if you have the time, um, that's great. Um, and then beyond that, we don't see much much additional benefit and maybe a signal of harm. Um, we also have research to show if you have no time to exercise, but you just do a little bit of something that is actually better than nothing. And that, and that we have good data to show that as well. Um, so exercise is important. If you can get in resistance training as well, meaning some sort of strength training, Pilates, yoga, something that's really focusing on, on, um, working your muscles, that's really good as well. Um, and so we just, we recommend 
two um, sessions of that per week as well, if you can. Um, so that's exercise in a very quick nutshell. Um, and then the other levers that we talked about, sort of stress reduction. Um, that is really, really huge um, and a really big area um, for many of my patients um, who um, their blood pressure is just a little higher than it needs to be, or it's really labile, really working on breathing techniques and meditation and different ways to find mindfulness. Um, and then sleep is another big one. So inadequate um, uh, sort of both qual quantity as well as quality of sleep. Um, uh, I diagnose obstructive sleep apnea all the time. That is a big risk factor for heart disease. Um, so that's a big one to, to kind of be mindful of um, and pay attention to as well. Um, and then the community and the connections and things like that. Um, and, and just finding people um, that, um, that bring you joy. Um, that's another kind of um, lever. And so all those things kind of go into to heart health, but also just health in general. <laughs> All of us are at plantedforward.com. So you can just go to our website, learn more about um, us there, um, book directly with any of us on that website. Um, so that's probably one of the easiest ways to become um, my patient. Um, you can you know, book your appointments through, through that. Um, and then um, just for general um, knowledge and things like that, I'm most active on Instagram. So Nicole Harkin, MD, you can follow me there. Um, I you know, post different tips and what I'm eating and all kinds of stuff. Um, and I love being in seeing, seeing faces around there. If you're interested in connecting with Dr. Harkin, she did share her social media and the website plantedforward.com. In conclusion, Dr. Nicole Harkin provided valuable insights into the field of cardiology, discussing the different types of cardiologists, treatments for heart conditions, and risk factors for heart disease. She also shed light on the increasing cases of broken heart syndrome during the pandemic and emphasized the importance of taking care of one's mental health. Dr. Harkin's approach to cardiac care is centered on precision and lifestyle medicine, with a focus on personalized treatment plans for her patients. Her dedication to preventive cardiology and promoting healthful, sustainable changes is truly inspiring. My friends, I hope that you enjoyed this conversation. Please share it with someone who can benefit from knowing more about heart health. And as always, I want to thank you for being a listener. You've been listening to the Healthy Lifestyle Solutions podcast with your host, Maya Acosta. If you've enjoyed this podcast, do us a favor and share with one friend who can benefit from this episode. Feel free to leave an honest review as well at ratethispodcast.com forward slash HLS. This helps us to spread our message. And as always, thank you for being a listener. 